We are studying through the book of Romans. We are in chapter 15, drawing near the end. But that's a preacher talking, so there's no telling how long it might take us to finish. Verse 13, ending out that last section we looked at. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by the way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. That's for God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as we have confessed, this is Your Word. Your Spirit must work with Your Word to accomplish Your purpose. Convert Your people. Sanctify Your people. Bless the preaching and the hearing of Your Word. Speak to Your people as Sam prayed. The living voice as we look at Your truth this morning. Help me to preach it. In the power of the Spirit. Help us to hear it as the Word of God in the power of the Spirit. And may you be at work building your church through the means you have ordained. Your Word preached. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. That can probably be traced back to Aristotle. When individual parts are combined, the whole that is made possesses qualities that are greater than each part possesses on its own. Example. Here's a list of parts. Flour. Baking soda. Baking powder. Salt. Cinnamon. Butter, brown sugar, eggs, vanilla extract, and oats. Now, some of those ingredients are pretty good by themselves, right? Some of them are okay, and some of them are disgusting by themselves. But when you put them all together with the right recipe... What you end up with is a transcendent whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. Yes, I am talking about delicious 
One of my favorites, oatmeal cookies. Sorry, not sorry for making you hungry. But you know that that whole is greater than the sum of its parts. The ingredients come together to make a wonderful whole that matches up with the plan of the designer slash cook. Other examples. I mean, there are tons of them. A car is greater. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. How about an orchestra? Music. Where a whole is greater than the sum of its parts. How about what we just did? The singing of the church. Where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And if you remember those ingredients to the oatmeal cookie, where some of them are good, and some of them are okay, and some of them are terrible, that's what we are as singers, right? Some of us are good, some of us are okay, and some of us can peel paint. But when we all sing together in unity, that one voice is beautiful and glorious in God's praise. So I, being one that can peel paint, am very thankful for the rest of you that can sing, that cover me up and allow me to sing out and sing God's praise. You can ask my wife. That is not my gift. Poor thing has to sit beside me every time we sing or stand beside me. But see, Christ's church is like that. We have, we've already seen this in Romans. His church has strong and weak parts. Has mature and immature parts. But when you put all of them together, you get a whole that is well equipped to glorify Him. And so today we're kind of talking about the church's corporate identity. And we don't want this verse to die the death of a thousand qualifications. I want you to see what I want to call the corporate identity of the church. It's important to know our individual identity. But it's also important to know from God's perspective our corporate identity. And that's what we're going to look at today. We've been studying the book of Romans, and um, Paul has never been to this church. He, he probably has some good intel from Priscilla and Aquila, right? But he's never been there. He doesn't personally know these people, and yet he says something amazing that we're going to look at today. But let's just stop for a minute and back up very quickly and remember where we've come. We've seen that, and I'm really moving fast, that the gospel is the thesis statement for the letter. And Paul starts out, notice how Paul starts presenting the gospel in Romans. And it's even more necessary today than it ever has been. You have to start with the bad news of lostness. You have to start with the fact that both Jew and Gentile, whole world, is born needing a Savior. None of us have kept God's law in thought, word, and deed. All of us are sinners. All of us deserve condemnation. There's none good, no, not one, Romans has shown us. And yet the righteousness that God requires, He has provided by manifesting His Son, by sending His Son to live for us, to die for us, to be raised for us and reign for us, that we might trust in Him and Him alone and be justified. Pardoned for all of our sins and accepted as righteous in His sight. 
Only for the righteousness of Christ that's imputed and received by faith alone. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, revealed in Scripture alone. A free gift. The wages of sin is death. That's the bad news. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. He works in the, and when he calls a person, he works repentance, a turning, and a trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he doesn't stop his work when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, chapter 6, we began talking about sanctification or growth in grace. And we see that the soul that he justifies, that he brings to faith, that he saves, uh, most of the time when we Southerners talk about salvation, we just talk about justification. We need to improve that, right? The soul that he justifies, he also sanctifies. Or grows in grace. And then we talked about the sovereign application of that in chapters 9 through 11. And that's a good, quick summary. But in chapter 12, we began talking about that. how then does the gospel, how does that truth change us? And Paul said, based on the mercies of God, chapters 1 through 11, I now call upon you to be living sacrifices. Holy sacrifices. Humble God trusting, God's word filled sacrifices for his namesake. And we, begin, we also saw him work for the unity of the church in chapters 14 and 15. And today, as we've kind of wrapped up the section on the unity of the church, we're just going to look at one verse, chapter, four, uh, chapter 15, verse 14. And I've entitled that, that this sermon, Full Field and able. Full, filled, and able. And here's the main point. Christ's sacrifice assures that his church is full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to instruct one another. First, be certain that the church is full of goodness. Be certain that the church is full of goodness. How can I be certain? Well, look at the verse there. Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness. I'll stop there. <clears throat> I myself being a form of emphasis. You see it later with you yourselves in the verse. That, that repetition doesn't have to be there. It's making a point. I myself am satisfied. And it's interesting, if you read this in the Greek, this word that the ESV is translating satisfied, it's moved all the way up to the front of the sentence for emphasis. Satisfied. Convinced. The word's thrown to the front. And in this form, this passive form, this word means to be convinced or certain of something. Be convinced or certain of something. And just like we, when we talked about verse 13, I want to say something again and remind you. If you look where in the ESV says, I myself am satisfied about you. That you is better translated y'all. Southern lingo. Because it's a plural you. This is plural. Not singular. I myself am satisfied about y'all, the whole group, the whole church. He's not saying these things about any one individual or, or all individuals individually. But these things are what he's saying about the church there in Rome. He's like, he says this. He's going to tell us three things, three amazing things about the church 
in Rome. And remember, Paul's never been there. He knows a few things about the church. But what is the first thing that he says? That you yourselves together are this. And it's interesting, and maybe some of you, if you're Star Wars fans, might hear a little Yoda word order here. Full you are of goodness is literally the way it's the order there of the words. But notice another word has been thrown forward, full. Full you are of goodness, and goodness being defined here as moral excellence, uprightness, goodness. And that's the way ESV chooses to translate it. Moral excellence, uprightness. Paul is writing to this church, and he says, I myself am satisfied about you, brothers, brothers and sisters, the whole church there, that you yourselves are one full of goodness. See, Paul's confidence in here, he doesn't even have to have been there and seen the church. And even if it was a church that he'd never been to, his confidence is first in God and what he has promised to do in his church. As I mentioned a minute ago, not just to justify, but also to sanctify. Paul has a confidence in God that what he's doing... um, is, is going to come to fruition and has come to fruition in his church being a local expression there in Rome. I've, I've heard people around here say that to one another. I'm, I, I'm confident in God's work in you. Because he's promised to sanctify his church as well as justify. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Look at this glorious statement. We're familiar with it. We could quote it, but just slowly. Read it once again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, your works. So that no one may boast. Paul says, you have been saved, you were dead in trespasses and sins. You've been raised with Christ. You've been saved by grace. That what God has required, He has granted. And you have been saved by grace through faith in Christ and in Him alone. Notice that it is not your doing. You didn't do this. It's not what you've done for God to make Him love you. It's what God has done in you to save you. It's not a result of your works. Why is that true? Why can't it be a result of my works? This is just Bible 101, right? Romans has already shown us there's none good, no, not one, when it comes to comparing us with the commandments of God. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment one. You shall worship me my way. Number two. You shall hallow my name. Remember my day. You not be unjustly angry. Jesus amplifies that murder commandment. If we're unjustly angry, we've murdered in our hearts. Commit adultery. Not looking with lust. Not stealing. Not not bearing false witness or lying. Not coveting. See, we've all broken those commandments in thought, word, and deed. That we break them first in our heart before we ever break them in action. 
And so that, see, that's why it can't be based on my words. I cannot be good enough. I cannot make myself good enough. I am not or never will be good enough to achieve God's acceptance on my own. Why? Because I would have to be perfectly righteous. I would have to have kept his law and thought, word, and deed. I would have to have never broken it. And listen, none of us have done that. That's why it can't be based on our works. That's why it cannot be based on our works. Ever since the garden, those born to Adam, ever since the fall, those born to Adam are born with guilt and corruption that manifests itself in breaking the commandments of God. We are sinners in thought, word, and deed. Who need salvation, yes, but deserve condemnation. We need salvation, but what we deserve in and of ourselves is condemnation. See, we blame Adam a lot for eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but we've all verified that action with our lives. What was that tree, by the way? Was the fruit of that tree just knowing the difference between good and evil? It wasn't. It was the tree of autonomy. It was the tree that that man could eat of and not have to depend upon God to tell him what's right and wrong. They would decide for themselves. They would become their own God. And they gave in. And we've been confirming that. I mean, read through Judges. The, the, The description in the book of Judges is each person did what was right in their own eyes. And that's the that's our compass setting when we're born. We come out of the room being the center of the universe, doing what's right in our own eyes, going the way we want to go. We'll take God's commandments when they line up with our plan, but just in a certain amount and in a certain way. We've all bitten that fruit of autonomy, rejected God. What Adam and Eve did was they rejected God's moral authority when they ate that that tree. And we have followed suit. So we are sinners who deserve condemnation. We don't deserve salvation. We're running our own way because that's what we delight in doing. But God calls upon us because he has sacrificed his son to repent. To change the direction of our soul. To have a new heart so that we go from not loving him to loving him. From not grieving over sin to grieving over it. And loving and desiring righteousness. From turning away and unto him. That we might trust and receive His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ died for our sins, the Scriptures say. And He was buried, He was raised the third day. And that salvation is through faith in Him. Christ paid the penalty. See, he took, the reason there's no condemnation for those who trust in Jesus is that He took that condemnation upon Himself and drank it dry on the cross. Because He was God and man, He could do that. And he could say paid in full before he left that cross. To tell us that. It is finished. It is paid in full. All my people's sin debt is paid. That's why that glorious verse in in Romans 6.23 that we've seen, the wages of sin is death. Physical death, yes. Spiritual death. Rejection. Condemnation. Forever. The wages of sin is that what Christ paid for us, that, the last part of the verse, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's what it's saying here. You've been saved by grace through faith. And that's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. But look, it doesn't stop there. In verse 10, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus 
for goodness, for good works, as God defines them, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, we go back to trusting Him as our moral center and authority and begin to seek to live life His way again by joyfully keeping His commandments. See, the plague we're dealing with in society following up on postmodernism is everybody's out there doing what's right in their own eyes. People are their own moral authority. Their happiness is sought in finding what they feel like doing and doing it. And that's what the first three verses of Ephesians describe. Walking according to the flesh in rebellion against God, being dead in trespasses and sins. What we need is a new heart so that we repent and trust Christ. And as the gospel is preached, God works that in hearts and repentance in faith and hearts. We are born again, therefore we turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he begins at that point to shape us into the image of his Son, Jesus kept the law in thought, word, and deed. And yes, he did that to provide a righteousness for us that we don't have, first and foremost, as the second Adam. But he's also an example, therefore, for us in the life that we're to grow in, is walking in joyful obedience to God's command. So there, there you go. Saved by grace. Uh, it's all a gift to you. And God, at that point, begins working in you to make you like Jesus. Grace transforms us. It's not just a ticket to heaven. Grace transforms the heart so that we love God and begin hating sin and wanting to walk with God. Look what Titus says. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, not just Jews but Gentiles too. That's what that means. Training us to renounce ungodliness. Look, this is what grace does. He trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave him, look at this, who gave himself for us, number one, to redeem us from all lawlessness, number two, and to purify for himself a people of his own possession, look at this, who are zealous for good works. See, that's what God is working in. That's what Paul knows, and that's what Paul's experienced, and that's what Paul is trusting, that God has brought these people in Rome to himself, and he's working in them by his grace to be zealous for good works. Yes, they are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, in their justification, but they're being transformed into a true righteousness through sanctification such that they are growing in a zealousness for good works. So in one sense, there is no such thing as a church that is not full of goodness. I remember when, this is not talking about individuals. This is talking about the church as a whole and the way God sees his church and what he's doing in his church. We recoil against that, don't we? We read something like that and we want to start billy-goating. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. God sees His church. It's full of goodness because that's what He's working in His church. So taken together, remember that cookie. Taken together as a whole. 
that transcendent whole that God's at work in His church is first and foremost full of goodness. See, Paul can say this with confidence because he's first of all trusting in the God who saves, justifies, sanctifies, will glorify. And therefore, he knows what he's doing in these people. What he has done in bringing them to faith and justifying them and what he is doing in sanctifying them. But there's real practical growth and grace going on in God's church or it's not God's church. That's true of individuals. There's real practical growth and grace going on in the individual's life or they're not God's people. And there's real practical growth and grace going on in God's church if it is really God's church. It can be said by Paul to be full of goodness. Right there. Number two, be certain that the church is filled with all knowledge. Second, look at look at it. Church is filled with all knowledge. It's interesting that he doesn't just say the church has knowledge, has goodness. It, right, he keeps adding these amplifiers. Filled, you're full of goodness. You're filled with all knowledge. He's not saying that any individual uh, or the church as a whole is omniscient, okay? But that they together are filled with all necessary knowledge. What is that? God's revealed knowledge in His Word. All the knowledge necessary to be and do what God wants them to do, they have in His Word. So Paul can look at them and say, I'm certain not only that you're full of goodness, but that you are filled with all knowledge. He says he's satisfied about this. Certain. Convinced about it. Filled with all knowledge. God's revelation, 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things, notice that, not just most things, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you, plural, might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. In and through His promises, big picture, in and through His Word, we have everything necessary for life and godliness. We have everything we need to be all that He's called us to be right here. We don't need to add to it. We certainly don't need to take away from it. The revealed knowledge, God's revelation of Himself and who He is and what He's done for us in His Son and who we are outside of Jesus and who we are in Him and what He calls upon us to do. I mean, what we're called upon to do on the basis of the gospel has been chapter 12 forward in Romans. Paul is convinced that they are not just full of goodness, but filled with all knowledge because they have the precious promises of God. Look what Paul says in Romans 2.20, where he's really making the case against the Jews there that they have the word, but they're not keeping the word, right? But in, in, as he's going through that, he makes a statement about God's law. He says, uh, you convince that you're an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children. Now watch this. Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. 
See, their problem wasn't a lack of revelation. It was a lack of application. Flowing from pride. But don't miss this. The church taken as a whole. Know that transcendent whole that we're talking about. That's greater than the sum of its parts. The church taken as a whole. Putting together the preachers and the teachers and the individuals who possess more or less knowledge but are growing in it. You take that church together as a whole. And second, the church is filled with all knowledge through the Spirit working with the Word. We're kind of sounding fully equipped here, aren't we? You're full of goodness. You're filled with all knowledge. It doesn't mean there's no room left in individual lives for growth or even in our church life. But we have what we need. So second, the church is filled with all knowledge through the Spirit working through the Word. And then thirdly, be certain that the church is able to instruct one another. Number one and number two being true. Third, the church is able to instruct one another in the word. Remember, we're still talking plural here. This is not a statement about any individual. You're not, quote, competent to counsel just because you've been justified. You grow in competency the more the word is in your heart and and you're you're living out the word. And he says, y'all... Y'all are full of goodness. Y'all are filled with all knowledge. And y'all are able to instruct one another. That word for instruct means to admonish, warn, give instructions in regard to belief or behavior, doctrine or life. And it's often used to give a a warning against wrong conduct. But Paul is saying, so, so you're full of goodness, you're filled with all knowledge, and therefore you're able to instruct one another you're able to rightly admonish one another and do that with the gentle heart like christ look at first thessalonians five fourteen, and we urge you brothers or brethren brothers and sisters that's the word meaning that's the whole church there we urge you to here's our word admonish the idle encourage the faint-hearted help the weak be patient with them all admonish the idol. Correct the idol there. So in, to instruct is to admonish, to warn, or give instructions in regard to belief or behavior. Paul is saying that the church there in Rome is competent to do this. Able. Because you're filled with goodness, full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and therefore able to. Big picture. Unified whole, able to instruct one another. So like I said, this verse is not saying that simply by virtue of being converted, a person is automatically able or competent to counsel other believers. But the church as a whole has been given the necessary resources through individuals God has prepared to rightly instruct one another. And if we're all in the Word, we're all on the same sheet of music, we're able to encourage and counsel one another. See, we as a church are responsible to walk with one another and help one another walk according to Scripture. Not be nitpicky and always pecking at the, you know, see, trying to get the speck out of your brother's eye when there's a plank in yours. There's a lot of qualifications we need to make when we're talking about this. 
But we're responsible to walk together in the community, arm in arm with Scripture, and to hold lovingly, hold one another accountable as followers of Christ. And the more mature you are, the better you will be at this individually. But as a church, you are able to instruct one another. Think about this. Taken as a whole, as a body, the church is able or competent to counsel one another. Think about church discipline in that process that we read in Matthew 18. Where does it start? It starts on an individual basis, doesn't it? If your brother or sister has offended you, you go to that brother or sister and let them know that. Not with fangs out. I'll have nothing else to do with you because you didn't eat my cookies. Not with fangs out, but in love with tears. I just need to let you know that blank hurt me or offended me or confused me. It's to go to one another in love and and listen, first before you come and before you tell other people what this person has done, go to that person. And don't gossip in the form of prayer requests. Oh, pray for her. You guess what she did? That is not sanctified. It's still gossip. But see, we go to one another. Church discipline starts on an individual basis, but it doesn't stay there. Like, if, But it, it does. If you go to your brother or sister and you, you let them know maybe how they've offended you and they are tearfully sorry and ask for forgiveness, then it's over. But if they won't, hear it or repent, then you take another with you and try to work that out. So maybe someone who knows them and all of that. And if they won't repent, you tell it to the church, which translated, bring it to your elders. And sometimes it's appropriate to come straight to the elders to be that other person to go with you, depending on what's going on. But eventually the whole church comes together in that church discipline process and hopefully sees restoration but sometimes it, it, it requires excommunication because the person is, is stubborn about it. But look at what Paul says about the church in Rome. And you know those people aren't glorified. And you know they're kind of like those ingredients in the cookies. And you know all of that. But he said, I am convinced about you. I'm persuaded. I'm satisfied about you, my brothers or brethren, the church, the whole church, that you yourselves are full of goodness that you are filled with all knowledge and therefore you are able to instruct one another. See, this is the church's corporate identity because this is what Christ is working in his church in the people that he saves and brings together and builds for his kingdom and as his kingdom. So when you read a verse like that, don't make it die the death of a thousand qualifications. Look at it and own it and believe that's what God is doing in His church. I mean, when we go over our identity in Christ as an individual, and the ladies are studying that, you know, we look at ourselves and you, you look. We don't see that always, do we? Just looking at the details. But it's true of us in Christ and it's becoming more and more true of us as we're sanctified. That new creation being applied. And the same thing is true of the church. 
where there is a church of Christ, a true church, it can be said of that church, I am convinced about you, brethren, full church, that y'all, you yourselves, are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So apply that quickly. Number one, remember, the you there is plural. We, we, so many times we'll, we'll mess up because we'll take all. That's why y'all would be so helpful in the translation. I know somebody came up to me after the service last week and said, it's not y'all, it's you guys. <laughs> well, that's better. Or you-ins. Or you guys. You see how we struggle with you. We try to clarify whether we're talking about singular or plural. Remember, in this context, it's plural. It's the church together. It's the body. And just as God's attitude toward us and who we are in Christ is true of us individually, it's true corporately. That we have what we need to be and do what He's called us to be and do. Our problem is not a lack of resources. If we have a problem, it's a lack of application of the resources he's given. So remember, number one, remember the you here is plural. He's speaking of the church as a body and the church that you're a part of. The local expression of his universal church. Listen, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway real quick. You can see, this is just one of a million reasons why you can see that church membership is important. If you want that laid out a little more for you, go to the Grace Church 101 class. We have a cold class on membership. But just know, what is modeled and exampled and commanded in Scripture is that you be a part of a local body of believers, that you make a commitment to that body and you get plugged into that body under leadership that will watch over your souls and disciple you and lead you in the way that you want to go. You can't love Christ without loving His church. And treat his church with all the grace that he treats you. So church membership is important. And being a part of a local body then, having this corporate identity, this should encourage us. But we remember, this is us as a body. This is a snapshot of God's grace, his work in us. That we are full of goodness by his grace and filled with all knowledge, the necessary knowledge, revelation knowledge. And therefore able to carry out his commands of church discipline and growth and protection. And we're able to instruct one another. And by the way, if you do go join a church, find one that does practice church discipline, okay? It's one of the marks of the church. Without it, it's not a church. A lot of rabbits I'm having to shoot this morning. The you is plural. Number two, know that the church in Rome, here we go, we're coming home now. Know that the church in Rome and the church in Swansboro as a whole is fully equipped and empowered by God to make disciples. By the way, what part of that mission are you playing? This is not a theater. This is a family. We all have gifts, and we're all to be using those gifts in service to God in and through His church. What part are you playing? On the other side of that, know that when you're keeping the kids in nursery, you're, part of, you're playing a part. When you're cleaning the church, 
You're playing a part. Lay it on out. Right? It's not just the preacher that's doing the work. Or it shouldn't be. And it's not. And it's not here. It's not just the pastors and the deacons that's doing the work. It's the church. What are your gifts? What part are you playing? Are you plugged in, not just in giving? Yes, giving is important, giving of your resources, but how about your time and your talents? Are you plugged in? Some of us who struggle to make connection in the church are not plugged in to the church. We're just attending and going. And if you're just attending and going, you won't get plugged in. If you're waiting on people to invite you, you won't get plugged in probably. Invite people. You want to be plugged in? Invite people. Get plugged in. Get serving. For crying out loud, come throw, throw the cornhole bags with the guys when they do that. Or go to the gun shooting range. Or ladies come to laugh. Or all the things that ladies... Get plugged in. But the church in Rome and the church in Swansboro as a whole is fully equipped and empowered to make disciples. And we all have a role to play in that corporate nature and body. So remember, the U is plural. Know that the, the church as a whole, these things are true. We're equipped to make disciples, so believe it. Last and live it. Be convinced that these things are true. Be certain. Be satisfied. Plug in. Stop riding the edges. Be a living sacrifice that is all in. I guarantee you, if you'll just... If you'll remember what we've studied in Romans and pick up reading in chapter 12, and if you will do those things that you see there, which is the application of the gospel, you'll be plugged in. You'll be part. Every one of you are vital and valuable and important. And the gifts he's given you are vital, valuable, and important in his church. So get plugged into the mission. And live streamers, I hope you're not sitting at home because it's easy or because you're not committed to a local church. Because if that's true, then get off the live stream and get in the local church. If you're not able to be here, praise God, you can, you can use the live stream. If you're in another country where there's not a church, praise God. But listen, if you, if you can plug into a, a, a church that is, is faithful, to God's Word. And you need to do that. Notice I didn't say a perfect one. When you find the perfect one, don't join it because you'll mess it up. Because <laughs> you're not perfect. But plug in. Stop riding the edges. We need each other now. Listen, if it was mentioned that Sam talked about persecution, if persecution comes, boy, we're really going to need each other then, aren't we? But it doesn't matter. That we don't come till we be protected. Give up all this talk about always being safe. Plug in for the mission. Sacrifice self for the mission. Believe the corporate identity of the church. Believe this about Grace Church. Because of God's commitment to His church and His work in His church. Grace Church. These things are true. Christ's church is way more than the sum of His parts. Praise God. And it's way better than you would expect just looking at the individual parts. Once the divine recipe is combined, gifted, and mixed well by Christ, it is something beautiful and well-equipped to be on mission for Him. 
Like Christ's original disciples. I mean, for crying out loud, read the Gospels. We ain't talking, we're not talking about the best and brightest here. Which comforts me because I'm not either. The more I walk with Christ, the more I'm a knucklehead just like them or worse, right? Or whatever. Like Christ's original disciples, he takes a group of weak, insufficient people and does something extraordinary with them. Makes disciples of all nations. So Grace Church, I quote this verse over you. I am convinced that y'all are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So plug in, lock arms, and grow in grace together. Live for Him in community and confidence that He has fully equipped His church for His purpose. Love and live for Christ. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, give us confidence in You and Your work of grace. In us individually, yes. In our identity in Christ, yes. In what You're transforming us into to be more and more like our Savior. Give us confidence in our corporate identity as a local body. Give us confidence that with all the... The, the people you've brought in and the gifts that you've given us, the, everything you're doing and working in us, that in Christ we are these things. Full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another to live out what you've called us to be and to do. To be a lighthouse for your gospel. To love one another the way you have loved us, self-sacrificially. To plug in. Yes, on Sunday mornings, but outside of that, to plug in, to sacrifice to plug in. To make your day of worship a priority over all other things on this day as we're able. We know that doctors and nurses and firemen and sometimes people have to, have to work. Lord Jesus. May we prioritize you. May we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And may we believe your word and receive the necessary encouragement from it. To both glorify and enjoy you. To love you. We know that loving you is joyfully keeping your commandments. Lord, convert those who don't know you. Bring the good news that you love the world in this way, that you gave your only begotten Son, that whosoever believes into, trusts in Him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Make that a reality in some lives today. And a reality in those of us who know you, that we are, we are constantly remembering the gospel and, and constantly freshly encouraged by the gospel, which fuels our love for you. Help us to believe your word about you. Help us to believe your word about us individually. Help us to believe your word about us corporately so that we're passionately engaged in the work of the kingdom out of love for our Savior. It's in Jesus' holy name that I pray.